Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 will be in verses 3. Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 will be in verses 3. Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 will be in verses 3. Passages. Romans 8 is. Um, speaking of which, one of our students uh, texted me, messaged me last night uh, with this phrase, uh, this word image that's been making its rounds on social media. This is what it said. It said, um, you should be as excited about church as the Super Bowl. Which I thought was good. Yeah. Uh, that's great. So when your pastor makes a good point this Sunday, pour Gatorade over his head. Um, and, you know, I really appreciate the intention behind his message. But if you could save the Gatorade for the end of the service, then that would be super helpful uh, for me. Uh, if, if we haven't met, uh, my name is, is Carson Cobb, and I, I lead our student ministry here, which just means that I, along with Jacob Jackson and two great interns and a fantastic team of youth workers, uh, we, we all seek to love and lead and model and mentor our students in finding their greatest delight in loving God and serving Him here and, and around the world. And we do have a very special group of students whom I've grown to love very much and just find great, great joy in watching them grow and begin to own their, their faith. Uh, and as a church, we are in the midst of a series that uh, speaks to this very topic, loving God in response to his loveliness and his great love for us. Uh, last week, we talked about what it means to love God sacrificially, or <laughs> what it means for God to love us sacrificially. That's important to get those in the right order. For God to love us sacrificially. And then today, we're going to talk about what it means for God to love us unfailingly. Uh, so to begin, let's read Romans chapter 8. I want us to read verses 31 through 39 out loud together. And before we do that, let me just say that Paul is reaching a climactic point in this letter to the Romans. Like he's really pumped about what he is writing and is about to say. So let's read it together with a little bit of extra oomph, right, to, uh, so we kind of get where he's coming from. So starting in verse 31, let's read out loud together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would open each of our eyes to see the strength of your love. Work in us today, Lord. Show us something fresh, something beautiful about who you are. Satisfy us this morning with your unfailing love that we would rejoice and be glad all our days. Amen. So when I was a kid, I experienced a little bit of what the American Psychological Association would now uh, describe as separation anxiety. Uh, This is how they would define it according to the DSM-5. They say uh, separation anxiety is inappropriate and excessive fear or anxiety concerning separation from those to whom the individual is attached as evidenced by, and then they go on to give a list of criteria by, what you might, by which you might diagnose this condition in men or women or children. Now, I'm not sure that mine was ever severe enough that would it would have required clinical diagnosis, but I do remember as a kid going to church. I don't know why church was always the worst. I, I, I don't know why, um, but I remember my sister and I going off to our class after the service. I don't think there was any child check-in back then. They just kind of sent you. Good luck. Hope you make it, kid. And there was this point where I would go up the stairs to get to my class, and my sister would go down this hallway to get to her class. And I remember uh, regularly going up those stairs, getting about halfway up, and then kindergarten logic kicking into my brain and thinking, you know, My parents might forget one of us. They probably won't forget both of us. So if I go to class with her, that cuts my chances of being forgotten in half. So I'm going to go with her. And I would regularly leave, go down, and she was super nice and would let me come to her class. Uh, But even after that, man, if my parents were not there to pick us up within like a couple of minutes of it being over... I just felt like this lump in my throat begin to rise. My eyes would start to get a little watery and uh, my, my heart would start to race. And then all these questions, you know, come to my mind. Like, what if my parents don't come back for us? What if they forget about us? What if they can't get to us or I can't get back to them? How are we going to survive? Where's the goldfish and the apple juice? Let's stockpile, you know, let's get ready in case they don't, in case they don't come back. Um, but in those moments, I should have been asking myself better questions, more realistic questions, more helpful questions. Questions like, have my parents ever failed to come get me at some point? No, they've always come back for me. Uh, do they tell me that they love me? Yes, they do. Um, do they give me a home to live in? Yes. Do they feed me? Yes. Those questions. And doesn't it make sense that they're going to come back for me? Yeah, yeah, I guess it does. And so over time, I had to learn to ask myself better questions. Questions that would persuade my anxious heart of my parents' love and concern for me. And I wonder if you have ever experienced anything like that. Maybe not as a kid, But what about as God's child? Do you ever find yourself anxiously wondering whether God's love may fail you? Uh, 
what kinds of circumstances cause you to, to ask these questions? Questions like, will God still love me if I have really messed up? Can God love me in spite of that sin? Or, what if this suffering that I'm going through, what if it means that God's given up on me? What if it means he no longer loves me? What if it means he's punishing me? Why am I going through this? But Romans 8 today is speaking to you and to me. And did you notice when we read it that most of it is phrased in questions, right? Better questions, the right questions, the kinds of questions that will help dispel our doubts about God's unfailing love. So let's unfold this passage together, asking ourselves these better questions, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Question one, better question one. What then shall we say to these things? Now, hopefully the question arises in your mind, what, what things are you talking about? What are the these things that Paul, the author, is referring to. Uh, As I mentioned before we read the letter together, that Paul is reaching a climactic point in his letter to the church at Rome. Uh, And so this section is in response to everything else he has already said. We don't, I don't think we exactly have time to read all the previous eight chapters, uh, but we do need to know, what is it that Paul is responding to? What's he so pumped up about? So let me just try to summarize. And if you were to read these passages, like before the Super Bowl or something today, uh, you could do that. It would not take you that long. But we start in chapter 1, where Paul telling us that God, in his perfect holiness and justice, has every right to punish every single one of us for our wickedness and selfishness. That's like chapters 1 to 2. And then chapters 3 to 4, he begins to tell us that uh, this way is not, this way to be made right with God is not through our earning God's forgiveness, but through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 5 through 8, Paul begins to just dump icing on the cake for Christians. So he begins to say things like, not only did Christ die for us, but he sets us free from the sin and selfishness that plague us. Not only does he set us free from sin, he sets us free from trying to keep the burden of the law in order to earn God's favor. Not only does he keep us from having to keep the law to earn God's favor, but now God adopts us in chapter 8 as his very own children. Not only does he adopt us, he chooses us and changes us to make us more like his son as we progress through, through life. So in summary, Paul is saying, hey, here's what you deserved. And yet, here is what God has given you. What then do we say to that? And Paul, what Paul says is our next question, which you might could just add a whole bunch of exclamation points at the end of this question because it's a great question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God, think God, like God, the holy, righteous, perfect maker of everything, God would be for you. And we've arrived at a part of Romans where Paul is specifically writing to Christians. He's writing to believers, those who have placed their faith in Christ. God is for his children. But without Christ, God, in a sense, is still against you. 
without Christ, God relates to you as a judge, which is a terrifying thought. But with Christ, in Christ, God is for you, which may be the most amazing thought that could ever cross your mind. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, don't think that, well, since this part is really only written for Christians, I may as well tune out. Uh, I would encourage you to not tune out just yet, because in this passage, you are going to see and hear the very heart of why anyone would want to be a Christian in the first place. And I think that may be worth sticking around to find out. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I don't think Paul means that Christians don't have any opponents, okay? Paul knows better than that. John Chrysostom, who was an ancient bishop in Constantinople back in like 400 AD, said this when commenting on this passage. Why, it may be said, who is there that is not against us? Why, the whole world is against us, both kings and peoples, both relations and countrymen. Yet these that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings, in that God turns their wisdom, their plots, into our salvation and our glory. So John Chrysostom, it's kind of hard to say, let's call him John C., uh, is saying that God, it's not, it's not that no one is against us. It's that God is for us. And this is what makes all the difference. Because if we're going to live for Christ in the face of our sin and our suffering, we need to be sure that God is for us. And knowing that someone is for you changes everything. Um, when I was a teenager, like middle school, and I know this is really weird, but I'll just tell you what I did. I, I used to like to listen to the Focus on the Family radio broadcast when I was in middle school. So I, I had to be like the only 13-year-old in the world who was full of marriage and parenting advice. You know, <laughs> Mom and Dad, if you want to work out your problems, just come see me in my bedroom. I'll be happy to counsel you. Uh, you shouldn't have grounded me this week. You should have grounded me last week for that other thing I did. It was directly rebellious instead of a mistake, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but... I don't, think, I don't think I've retained uh, much of that, what I heard when I was in middle school. But there is this one broadcast that still sticks out to me for some reason. And I, I remember listening, doing my homework, sitting, sitting there in the afternoon. And it was a couple, a, a married couple, who were being interviewed about, about their marriage and about their journey. And I'll never forget the husband saying... When things begin to finally change in our marriage, they have been going through a, a very long season of arguments, fighting, distress in their home. And he said, I'll, the, when things begin to change is when I realized and chose to believe that my wife was for me, not against me. Even though we disagree still on some things, even though we may not always see eye to eye, I began to believe that she was in my corner. That she had my best interest in mind. Even when I didn't feel it, I chose to believe it. She was for me. And that's what began to change their relationship. And I think this is true in really any relationship. You know, that teacher or that coach 
or that professor or that guy or that girl or that friend or that family member that you've once found so intimidating. When you find out that they actually like you, they think you're pretty cool, they're for you, they're in your corner, it begins to move your relationship from intimidated to intimate. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to press us into today. To see that because God is for us, we don't have to be intimidated, but that we can be intimate with him. God is in our corner if we are believers. But you might wonder, how do I know? How do I know that God is for me? How can I be sure? It's a great question. One of the things I love about the Bible is sometimes it feels like it has telepathy. Like it reads your thoughts ahead of time and then answers it predicts your questions. And that's exactly what Paul does. And he answers our question with his next question. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can you know that God is for you? This verse is crucial to Paul's argument. Don't miss this. To quote John C. again, what Paul means then is as much as follows. If God gave his own son, and not merely gave him, but gave him unto death, why doubt any more about the rest, since thou hast the master? And Paul Tripp says much the same thing if you happen to read the meditation for preparation that Daniel Creswell puts together each week. It's really good. Uh, Then you know that this passage Uh, Tripp says it is all about redemptive logic. Here's what he means. He says, this passage simply defies, or it would simply defy redemptive logic to allow yourself at any moment in your life to think that God would go to the extent that he has gone to provide you with salvation and then lose you along the way. If God controlled nature and history so at the right time Jesus came to live, die, and rise again on your behalf, if he worked by grace to expose you to the truth and gave you the heart to believe, and if he now works to bring the events of the whole universe to a final glorious conclusion, does it make any sense to think that he would fail to provide you with everything you need between your conversion and your final resurrection? These are better questions indeed. So when my wife, Ashley, and I got engaged, I bought her an engagement ring. And I know not everybody's into the whole engagement ring thing. You know, isn't that kind of a giant waste of cash just promoted by diamond marketing companies and cubic zirconium looks just as good anyway. So what's the point, right? Uh, But I I thought there was some value uh, in the whole engagement ring phenomenon. And so I bought her this this ring uh, when I was first... Out of college, saved and saved and saved, working as a teacher to to buy this bad boy. Ashley was very brave to give it to me uh, this morning. So if I lose this, would you please return it? And if you see my wife, she's still married to me. So just just know. Um, But on a cold December night in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, we walked up on this bridge that overlooks the city. There's a walking path on the bridge. Don't get the wrong idea. It's not like we just walked up on this bridge, you know, in case things didn't go well. Leverage for negotiations, I guess. Um, we, there's a walking path that we both went up and, and overlooks the town. And so I got down on one knee and I got out the ring and I gave her the spiel and, you know, she said yes. And it was awesome. But by giving her this ring, 
I was literally giving her the most valuable thing that I owned. This ring was more valuable than the car that I drove at the time, for sure. Uh, it was more valuable than any uh, electronics that I had in my house. It was valuable than all my more valuable than all my clothes put together. So that by giving her this ring, I was saying to her, I love you and I show you by giving you the most valuable possession I have. I can't give you anything any better. So you have no need to worry about the rest. Not that she would have wanted the rest of my stuff. But this is the pledge that I gave her with the most valuable thing that I had. How do we know that God is for us? Verse 32 is telling us. He has given us the most valuable thing that God could possibly give us. His son who gave him up unto death. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says it this way. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that with a lamb without blemish or spot. But now, now for us in this passage, uh, maybe here comes some but whatabouts. So you say God's for me. Uh, he shows that through me, uh, to me through Christ. But what about dot, dot, dot? You might call this, we call this in our house, the what if game, where you start snowballing to the worst case scenario in your mind. You ever play this game? It's not a good game to play. Uh, but this passage again reads our minds ahead of us and begins to deal with our but what about dot, dot, dot. So verse 33, let's look there. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Do you hear the but whatabouts that lie behind his questions? Do you ever ask them? What if people really knew about me? What if people really knew how sinful I can be? What if I'm found out for who I really am? What if I fail? What if God would condemn me? Can I be separated from Christ's love then? Would God still be for me? Again, for the believer, this passage contains such great relief. Look at how he answers the first question. It is God who justifies. You are not the final judge of you. Your conscience is not. The devil is not. Others are not. God is your final judge. And as a believer, God is your father. Accusations of guilt, even when they are true, must go before our heavenly father who has already declared us not guilty. And God is not in the business of reversing his declarations. But still, you might wonder, what if God would condemn me? He answers this in the second verse. Christ Jesus is the one who died, or the second question rather. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? 
Paul's answer to every question about uh, whether we have God's love or favor as believers is always the same. Spoiler alert. He always says, Jesus. How do we know that God is for us? Jesus. How do we know that God won't condemn us? Jesus. I mean, just look at the argument that he's building here in verse 34. This is who you have standing before God on your behalf. Christ Jesus, the one who died for you, who was raised for you, who is in the greatest position of power in the universe and indeed is interceding for us. So this illustration I'm going to use may seem a little bit weird at first, but just hang with me for a little while. Uh, One of the guys who works with our youth recently bought this this card game. Uh, And it's a pretty interesting game. It's a game of nerdy, creative arguments, uh, which is great and a lot of fun. Uh, We had some high school and college guys over to our apartment a few weeks back uh, to play. And basically what you do is... Uh, Amongst this group of people who are playing, two people uh, get some cards. Um, You get a character card and then two attribute cards that are always pretty random and funny. So I think we have an example. So one player might get a character card that says, hipster, armed with a lightsaber, okay, who is also afraid of their own shadow. That doesn't help you out too much. And then the other character might get, a reggae band that can teleport, that also has no depth perception. And the point of the game is for these two players to argue against each other as to whose character would beat up the other character in a fight. This is a real game, yes. And all the other players, they sit there and listen to your arguments, and at the end of the arguing time, they all vote for who has made the better argument. Okay. Silly, I know, but make no mistake, Paul is playing his strongest cards to make his strongest argument for why you need not fear separation from God, even in the face of your sin and failure. Do you see him playing his cards? It's like card number one, Christ Jesus, who is like God's son, the second member of the Trinity, right? Next card, who has died for you to redeem you from your sins. Next card, who has risen on your behalf, showing us that God has accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, that our sin no longer condemns us. Next card, who stands in the presence of God Almighty in the supreme position of power and authority in the universe. Next card, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul is convincing us as strongly as he can that God is for us. John Stott says it well when he says, we can therefore confidently challenge the universe with all its inhabitants, both human and demonic. Who is he that condemns? There will never be any answer. And this is what the hymn writer Charity Smith had in mind when she wrote her old hymn, which was originally titled The Advocate, and we sing it under a different title. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. 
So hear this. There is no need for us to remain in the shadows and shame of our sin, hiding from God or from one another. If, if you are struggling with a besetting sin that is eating your lunch, there is no reason to hide. Confess. Confess to your father. Confess to your brothers and sisters and find help and mercy. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 13 reminds us that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. For those who truly belong to Jesus, even our sin cannot separate us from his unfailing love. So confess them, forsake them, and find that God is for you. But perhaps it's not your sin that causes you to question your father's love. Maybe it's your suffering. And indeed, this foe can seem all the more deadly, for when we suffer innocently, we cannot help but wonder, why? What have I done to deserve this? God, I thought you loved me. But as usual, Paul is one step ahead of us. Let's look at verse 35. And 36, he anticipates our question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, I have no doubt that Paul's first readers, the church in Rome, needed desperately to hear those words. Uh, under the reign of the Roman emperor, these Christians would soon face, if they weren't already facing, severe trials. Uh, some of them, perhaps their children, would end up as human torches to light up Nero's house parties. And it just makes me wonder, you know, were these the words that came to their minds as they were being lit on fire for the sake of Christ. Now, Paul didn't write this passage as a feel-good platitude to put on a bumper sticker. If you know Paul's life, he had experienced every single one of these except for one. He had experienced tribulation, check. Distress, check. Persecution, check. Famine, check. Nakedness, check. Danger, check. The only one he had not experienced, and he would in time, was the sword, execution. And if you notice, uh, Paul quotes a psalm here, Psalm 44. So he's reaching back to the Old Testament to show that unexplainable suffering has often been the plight of God's people. Then, in Rome, and today. And this may seem confusing to God's people who suffer. It certainly seemed perplexing to the authors of Psalm 44. So let's read a portion of this, uh, starting in verse 8. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. 
You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have, let's see, I want to jump to verse 17. All this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you, we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, and you have covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And this is the part that Paul quotes. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Do you hear their cry? Do you hear what they are saying? God, what is going on? We haven't forsaken you, but it sure feels like you have abandoned us. Please come help us for the sake of your unfailing love. And to them in that moment, it, God's love does not seem so unfailing. Uh, here you should see a picture of uh, me and two of my good friends, Somraj and Emmanuel. Uh, Somraj is the guy right next to me. Emmanuel is the guy on your far left. And there's me with a little bit more hair than I have now. Um, Again, Somraj, your far left, Emmanuel's the guy in the middle. These are both uh, pastors in India, uh, both dear brothers who love the Lord dearly. Um, and both of these men have been beaten uh, for the work of Christ. After, just recently, after this trip to India, um, soon after I, I got back home, Emmanuel emailed me and just let me know that something awful had happened to Pastor Somraj, that uh, he had planted a church in a new town, and some extremist near that town had found out what he was doing. And so they came to his home in the middle of the night and dragged him out of his home in front of his wife and children and beat him within an inch of his life. And so, of course, I responded back to Emmanuel and asked, how is Somraj doing? Uh, he told me that although he had been beaten badly, he was recovering and he was rejoicing. He was rejoicing that he would suffer for the one who had suffered for him. How? Like, how do you do that? How do you get there mentally where you can rejoice in suffering like that? And I would say that it's because Somraj knew that God was not against him. He was still for him. And Somraj could know that God was still for him because he was not measuring God's love by his present sufferings, but by what Christ had suffered on his behalf. Somraj did not see this beating as a mark of God's displeasure, but as a badge of honor to suffer for the one who had suffered for him. Pastor John Piper has written 
on this passage uh, just about as well as anybody. So I'm going to quote him at length here, so buckle up for a long quote. Um, He says, what is God's design in all of this spectacular truth? His design is your security for the sake of bold, joyful, unwavering suffering for the cause of Christ. How do we know this? Because of the next verse, the one that we just read. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In the sword that cuts off your head or pierces your heart. In the peril that sweeps away your family and leaves you alone. In the nakedness that shames you in rape or the prison yard. In the famine that leaves you and your bloated children with bones draped in skin. In the persecution that blocks all your professional advances or burns your house. In the distress or calamity that leaves you paraplegic or takes all of your life savings. In the tribulation that wrings your soul till you wonder if every drop of faith will be squeezed out of it. The design of God in this chapter is to give you such a deep, firm, unshakable, God-wrought, blood-bought security in his all-conquering love that in these seven kinds of sufferings, you will not curse him or forsake him or reproach him, but trust him and hold fast to him and be satisfied with him when all else is taken away. What is this section of Romans meant to accomplish in you, Piper asks? It is meant to make you unshakably secure for the sake of suffering and the Christ-exalting path of obedience. The point is to build into your life God-wrought, blood-bought security to help you suffer well. In other words, this passage wants to convince us that God's love is truly unfailing, that he has done everything he can to show you that he is for you so that you would not abandon living for him and the spread of his fame in your anxious moments of sin or of suffering. So, how will Paul answer all these questions? Let's see. In verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a beautiful ending to this section of the book. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. No thing. Not death with all of its agony and fear. Not life, which for many is a more difficult prospect than death. Not angels, not the most powerful supernatural being that you can think of, not space, not time. No, nothing can separate us from God's unfailing love. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, not just shuffle by, suck it up, tough it outers, but more than conquerors. To quote uh, our bishop of the day once more, John Chrysostom, he said, what is indeed wonderful is this, not that we are conquerors only, but that we are conquerors by the very things meant as plots against us. 
And this just seems to be how God works. He mysteriously takes our sufferings and turns them into his and our greatest victories. He uses our afflictions and somehow produces in us what Paul would elsewhere call an eternal weight of glory. We are more than conquerors. How? He answers, through him who loved us. And I really love that Paul put that in the past tense, which you might think is a little weird. Why wouldn't it say through him who loves us? Doesn't God love us? Yes. So why does he say God loved us? Is it because God loved us like one time back then and that was it and he doesn't love us anymore? No. He's referring back to the way that we know God loves us, which is the once for all sacrificial work of Jesus on our behalf. That's how he loved us. Paul hardly goes a sentence in this section without mentioning Christ. It was like he just wants to make it clear for us. How do we know that God is for us? Christ. How do we know that his love is unfailing? Christ. It's his work. It's his life. It's his death. That's how we can know for sure that God loves us and is for us. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Think about this. Without Christ and his work, how can you know that God is for you? How can you be sure? I don't think you can. Without Christ, you will always be wondering if you measure up. You'll always be wondering if your sufferings are perhaps signs of his disapproval. But this passage teaches us today that you cannot base or measure God's love for you by your current conditions, but by the cross of Christ. This is why we can know that God loves us unfailingly. Not our performance, not our circumstance, but Christ. Christ's cross is meant to be the balm for our separation anxiety and our suspicion regarding the permanence of our Father's love. And if we know that, if we know that He is for us, that is what will sustain us to continue to live for Him and for His fame in spite of our sin and in the midst of our suffering. That is how we know and that is how we go. So uh, I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and to lead us in song and to lead us to respond to God's unfailing love.
during this song, during this time of response, uh, maybe you just need to keep your Bible open and you need to let these better questions wash over you and convince you once again of your Father's unfailing love. Uh, Perhaps you would like to come down and pray and simply give thanks to God for His love. Uh, Perhaps you want to come pray or ask one of our pastors or elders for prayer because your sin or your suffering has dimmed your view of God's great love for you. And you need to see it again. Uh, Perhaps there's someone very close to you um, that you would like to pray for. Maybe you need to pray a Romans 8, 31 through 39 prayer for them. Or maybe today you have never embraced the great, great love that God offers us through His Son. Now or after the service would be a great time to talk with one of our pastors or elders. I'll be down front um, to talk with anyone or pray with anyone who who would like that. Um, So let's pray. Let's sing. Let's read. Let's ask ourselves these better questions. Let's worship the God who loves us unfailingly. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would use your word now to calm our anxious hearts. Convince us by your spirit that your love really is unfailing. Lord, sink these better questions down into us deeply that we would know that your love for us is not based on our performance or on our pain, but on what has already been accomplished at the cross. Lord, and as we're convinced of that, help us make us serve you and even to suffer with security, knowing that you have given us your best, and so we can know that you will not leave us, and you will not fail us. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and sing and pray as God leads you.